Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. On this episode, it is with great pleasure to have Mike Tashir come back on the podcast. Mike was previously on the podcast way back on episode 57, which was back in October 2014. I can't believe it was that long ago. Mike is the owner and head coach at Reactive Training Systems. Mike was also the first man from USA powerlifting to win a gold medal at the World Games. And he has also coached over a dozen competitors at the World Championships, a score of national champions and multiple world record holders. On this episode, Mike and I discussed many topics, including what's new at Reactive Training Systems, determining training volumes and other outside stressors within the training process, how a lifter's psychological makeup can determine certain programming factors such as volume, intensity, and frequency, monitoring stress within the training process, some program design questions around the main lift and assistance movements, and we also discussed much, much more throughout the show. This was a great conversation with Mike, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Mike Tashir, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come back onto the podcast. Um, I would imagine there won't be too many listeners who don't know who you are, but uh, and obviously I'll put a link to our previous podcast so they'll get a bit more of your background. But maybe just for some listeners, and this is their first ever time uh, hearing you being interviewed or hearing of Mike Tashir and Reactive Training Systems, maybe just give us a, a quick background. Sure. Um, I'm Mike Tushir. I'm a powerlifting coach. I started Reactive Training Systems in 2008. And, um, you know, I was a high-level powerlifter for a lot of years. Um, I'd like to get back to that, but that's maybe another story. Um, you know, I had some world records and uh, won the World Games in 2009 and things of that nature. And um, But really... The thing that I've been focused on, especially the last several years, has been coaching. And we've done a a really good job uh, coaching high-level lifters. We've trained uh, something to the tune of nine IPF world record holders at this point, Uh, quite a few world champions, you know, and and so on down the list. But um, that's not all we do, you know. Excuse me. Uh, It's not just you know, exclusively high level people that we work with. Uh, we work with, uh, people at, at really all levels, although, you know, a ranked novice is probably not going to want to work with an online coach. Um, but you know, a question I get asked a lot about the coaching part itself is, uh, I got asked this question yesterday during a, a video that I was recording actually was, do we use the same processes for, you know, just a standard ordinary athlete uh, that we would use for, you know, a high level athlete, say somebody trained for the world championship. And the answer is yes. You know, and, and that was a big deal to me, you know, as we started developing the coaching program and everything else that, uh, it was important to me from an ethical standpoint that we do use the same processes, you know, that if the process is good enough for, uh, just some random lifter, then it's good enough for me to use for myself and my own personal training. You know, so it's, it's, you know, the program that comes out the other end varies pretty dramatically, you know, but it varies at all levels. You know, um, the idea though, is that the process that we use to get to that program is consistent, you know, and that was, uh, um, 
a thing that was really important to me as we started designing our system. Great stuff. And I'm going to ask more questions about that as the show goes on. But just before we get there, like with reactor training systems, like what's been new since the last time we spoke? And is there anything on the horizon that, that you're working on or is there anything you can say? Or like I know Good. just before, off, before we got online, I was saying like you seem to put out a lot of stuff in the, the classroom, RTS, a lot of stuff around programming. And like, uh, do you see yourself going to more like an online, almost like, you know, education platform or like even... Not, even, not like so much a certification, but maybe more like online courses and educations for powerlifting coaches and athletes. Maybe. You know, it, it's a thing that we struggle with a little bit, you know, and and it's just about trying to find what's the best way to, to help people. Mm. You know, the, the thing about coaching uh, started because somebody contacted me and asked me if I could coach them online. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, that sounds great, you know. Um, I didn't even know it was a thing, so we kind of figured it out as we went, yeah. you know. And uh, uh, it, and like I was telling you, that's been almost ten years ago uh, that that all kicked off, you know. So it started out as a way to to help people, but then I know that some people, some people like me, um, retaining control of the program is a thing that they want to do, and there are a bunch of different reasons. Some people have you know, issues letting go of it uh, from a control standpoint. Other people just like to tinker with it, you know, and I'm kind of somewhere in the middle between those two things for myself, you know, so I understand that as well. So not everybody is going to want to sign up for coaching or whatever. So how do you help those people too? And that's really where classroom came to be. You know, um, we, you know, have the book and the articles and, you know, videos and stuff like that, seminars that we were doing. And one thing I noticed from doing these seminars is that um, we would go to a place and deliver this seminar and you can only just barely scratch the surface of whatever it is that you want to talk about. Even if I'm going and I go and spend, you know, a two day workshop just myself and I'm talking for two days straight. It seems like we're just getting into the stuff that I think is is really cool and really interesting, you know. So I think a seminar is a really great way to communicate that stuff with people, but it's it's hard to get into the real depth because you you have to cover all your bases. Yeah, you know, there's you so much. To, you have to lay so much context and awful lot. Like you have to put so much context down first for then people. To exactly. Be able, yeah, people have to take away that information and be able to put it into their situation because, like you know yourself, a lot of the time. Sorry for interrupting you, but but you, a lot of time you get people. Um, who just they hear like sound bites or little bits of information and then they take that and run with it and they've just taken it and applied it to like a completely different contextual situation and then they'll come back and say, Well that didn't work or this is bullshit. It's like, yeah, because you, you didn't have like all this foundational knowledge to be able to apply that one piece of information you got, so I completely understand. It's like yeah, yeah at the end of those two days you're like, no, we can start talking about the shit. <laughs> yeah, and, and you can't skip over it. And that's not to say that that all those, uh, you know, early levels of information are useless. They're actually super, super valuable, Mm. but there's so much more to discuss, you know, and it's like, that's really fun to talk about and learn about as well. Yeah. You know, so how can we get to that? So my, my thought behind the classroom was, uh, to move it into a more online format. So what we do currently, uh, we teach classes that run for three months. There's 10 lessons. So 
it's like a seminar, but since it's in an online format, we can get into a lot more depth, you know, and then successive classes can build on each other, you know, so right now we have microcycles and mesocycles, and those are kind of the entry point classes, you know, they cover all that stuff that you need to know, and it, it is, those are super valuable classes, like microcycles itself, it, I mean, it's a class that focuses on the training microcycle, so like a training week. And it focuses on that and tries to teach the, the attendee um, how to build a really great training microcycle. It's the building block of every other training period that you use. It's a building block of, of every periodization methodology. You know, and if you can execute that one thing really, really well, then it's, it's the 80-20 rule. You know, that's going to get you 80% of your progress. You know? And yeah, the other stuff is cool too, but like this is super important, super foundational. So you start with microcycles and then you go into mesocycles and we start talking about periodization and then we can get into individualization and, you know, emerging strategies and stuff like that. And, and it's, uh, you know, the classes build on each other as they go, you know, and it's really cool to be able to talk about that stuff in more depth and, you know, get more into the stuff that's like, well, for me, when, in my coaching practice, like what am I doing currently? Mm. Um, you know, what are we working on? What are we not quite sure about? What questions are we trying to answer and stuff like that, which all that stuff comes later on. Um, you know, but there's, there's a lot to talk about, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, so I, uh, I teach in a, in a facility here in Ireland. We, um, it's a person training college, but it's also a, a gym as well in the mornings and the evenings. And a very good friend of mine also teaches in the college and he, he coach in the gym and he's a powerlifter his name's um, Cameron Higgs you'll, you'll meet him in, when you come over to Ireland in, in July and uh, great guy st- very strong guy strong dude and uh, loves your stuff like and so we all we always like we, we get into like real sort of deep discussions and training and life or whatever but when we, when we start having more training like we always we look, I don't sit down with Mike Tashir Tashir seems like a guy who just always thinks about training like you always strike as a guy like wakes up in the middle of the night and like you're thinking about training you're just like, I wonder would that work? And I've never thought about that before. Like, so like, you know, that, that's the, so like basically what I'm trying to say is like, I just want to nerd out with you now for the next hour. Or oh, yeah, man. So like with, um, like training volumes, Mike, are, are a big thing. And again, like we spoke about context and, and I know like a lot of this, the answers are going to be, well, it depends, you know, so the athlete, yeah. their training age, their body type with regards to their levers, their fiber type, their ability to recover from certain volumes, usually like, like me, like I'm a slow twitch, long lever person. Um, I'm more of a puller versus a pusher. I do very, very. I'm a, like deadlift is my best lift. Like I, I, I'm good at pulling things, but I'm not great at pushing things. Due to just lever and fiber type to it, I always seem to respond actually to high frequency deadlift, and my body can handle it. But also my force outputs would be a lot lower than something stronger. Like my max deadlift was only two and a half times body weight, which like isn't terrible, but it you know isn't isn't like somebody who's dead pulling three or three and a half or whatever. Yeah. Say like my squat was only ever like two and a half pounds by weight, so like that's obviously a much lower output than some of the heavyweights or people who are in more middleweight classes. So obviously their frequency would be lower. But it, it just in terms of how you look at volumes, and then I think I asked you this before, maybe tried to message her on the previous podcast. Like, do you like how do you manage volumes in a lifter, whether whether like beginner, intermediate, or advanced, and however you're classifying that, like, do you do like like the old sort of Olympic lifting systems, like Russia, where it's like there's a monthly volume, and I'm going to divide that into these micro cycles, and this is what I want you to get this, 
or is it a little more like I know you like to do the volume week kind of with intensity week, volume week, intensity week. Like do you certain like parameters of volumes match with maybe certain intensities? You know, will it like so it's kinda of like guidelines and we have because obviously you can't say well it has to be this because it's, it's gonna be independent on the lift or two, but how how are you looking at volumes in your training and then maybe matching that with intensities if if, if that question isn't so vague? No, I think it's a good question, but uh, I, I may be taking it in a direction that um, you don't want to go. So if I am, stop me. But um, I think it goes back to, to what question are we trying to answer? Cool. You know, so for for me, a lot of times it seems that when people are asking a question about training volume, like how much volume should a lifter do or anything like that, what they really want to get at is – um, the level of work, you know, how much it's a quantity question, how much work should you do? But, uh, the, the context there is, uh, and the, the underlying axiom there is that you need to do as much work as you can within reason while still being able to recover. Yes. You want to do enough work so that you're progressing quickly yes. uh, at a good rate, but still able to recover. Yes. So, that's not really a question of volume, I don't think, because what we really want to know is how much, yeah, how much work can we do? How much uh, training stress can we um, put on an individual? Which is always going to be in flux. It's always going to be a dynamic flux because you, you're, you know, factors yeah. have you fatigued and like if you didn't sleep or you're, you're in a caloric deficit for whatever reason, obviously your volumes are going to be. Yeah, changing. Yeah, it, it certainly can be, you know, so um, it's actually kind of convenient. I was just working on a presentation about training stress for classroom, uh, so it's kind of cool that we're talking about it now. Cool, yeah. um, so for me, training stress, so where does training stress come from? Well, it comes from volume, you know, and, and that one's pretty obvious, I think. So the quantity of work that you do is going to cause muscle damage, uh you know, it's going to have a recovery cost, you know? So, okay, that one's obvious. The next one, I think the next major component of training stress is uh, psychological arousal. You know, if you get more psyched up for a set, then uh, it's going to be more stressful. And if you're um, a bit more reserved for a set, it'll be less stressful. Um, one way that, that I've seen this play out um you take a lifter who never trains at 90% weights, you know, um, which is oddly enough, less common to find these days. But for a while that was, that was the thing. People felt like 90% weights were inherently more stressful. So they avoided them, mm. you know, until certain stages of your training, but it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah. So if you never touch a 90% weight and then one time in 12 weeks, you come to the gym and, there's 90% on the bar. And this is more weight than you've handled in three months. Even though, you know, 90% for a single or something like that is not that hard, it's more weight than you've handled in three months. And that's going to have a psychological impact, you know. And what you find is that people that handle 90% weights rarely find them stressful. People that handle 90% weights frequently don't find them stressful. You know, and I think it's kind of an exposure therapy kind of thing. You know, if you're uh, constantly exposed to it, it becomes a matter of routine. And then it's not so stressful. 
it doesn't impact your recovery in the same way. You know, so quantifying psychological arousal is not so easy, though. You know, so one way that I've gone about doing that is we can use RPE to kind of ballpark it. And it's not perfect, but if you go up to a barbell and you know that you're going to do a set, it doesn't matter how many reps, and it's going to be a 10 RPE. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to fight for it. Without even trying, you're going to get more psyched up. And then on the other side of that, if you come up to a bar and you know that it's going to be really easy, a 6 RPE, no matter how hard you try, you don't get to the same place mentally, you know, like your subconscious brain knows what's going on, you know. Um, So I think RPE can, uh, it's not perfect, but it gets us close, you know, and those two things I think are, are the biggest contributors to training stress. Mm. So if we look at the, at those two things, um, and what I, what I did is I looked at training logs, a lot of training logs, and we kind of extracted out some information from that, and we came up with uh, a stress index. Um, it's basically just a, a number that intends to approximate the recovery cost of a given a given training session or a given week or whatever whatever you're you know inputting the data into, you know, and it's not. It's not intended to be, you know, absolutely precise, but it gives you a rough estimate of how much training stress is a person uh, capable of dealing with. Um, you know, how much training stress is a given protocol gonna gonna impart on a lifter, and so on. You know, so we use that to kind of determine how much volume should a lifter do. For example, I know that most people are right around a 20 on the stress index. Now, that may, may not mean a whole lot to you, but uh, if you use the, the training log system on the RTS website, which is free for everybody to use, by the way, you can run various reports on your training log, and it will calculate all your training stress indexes for you. And um, for most lifters, you know, you take your average lifter, and we start them off around a 20 on the stress index for upper body movements, so for your benching movements, and around a 20 for your lower body movements, so squat and deadlift together. So 20 for upper and 20 for lower, and that's a good starting point, you know. But that does vary a bit from individual to individual. Like you have some people, like uh, Liz Craven, for example. Um, for anybody that doesn't know her, she was the world record holder uh, for 52 kilo women. Uh, for a while, um, she came in, I believe, third last year at the World Championship, strongest woman in Australia, on and on and on, a uh, really high-level uh, woman to work with. And um, I know that she can tolerate around a 30 on the stress index. So it's about 150% of what your average person can deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, But then other people go the other direction too. So there's a little bit of dialing it in that has to happen there, but, you know, 20 seems to be a good starting point for most people that have a couple years of training under their belt. You know, they're kind of solid intermediate lifters. Um, most people that, that I see, you know, I'm sure that there are plenty of people, uh, who lift weights who wouldn't think to come to me as a coach as well, who maybe would shift that, uh, average number a bit, but, you know, I think 20 seems to be a pretty good starting point. Okay. So is there, so do you take 
personality of the lifter then into consideration, maybe, in terms of, so you're talking about some guys who get really psyched out, whereas there's other guys who, you know, they're a little more laid back or chill. Like, you you come across a lifter in your videos who's like, you seem to be a lot more chilled and you don't yeah. seem to be like rah-rah or, or really get too psyched up. Because just a note I made here is like, there is a concept then of like almost getting adrenaline resistance. Like, so when you need to actually get up and get going, you, you've mobilized that pathway so many times that, it's like redundant now at this stage. You can't even you can't even get the benefit from actually getting a bit hyped up because every set with those guys is like like redundant. You're kind of like it's only a seven on the RP. Relax. Like, right? <laughs> so is there right. any is there like in your intake form with your athletes? Do you consider personality traits or or would you have you thought about that or? We do ask about it, and it will influence some of those early training decisions. Yeah. You know, but after we get going. Um, it gets accounted for in other ways, you know. So if you are the kind of lifter that's getting really psyched up uh, for every set, and let's say that that's causing more training stress than it would for another person, mm-hmm. you know, what we're going to see then is that your track score. Uh, so track for anybody that doesn't know, track is uh, uh, an athlete monitoring system. It's also free to use, but. Um, it consists of a heart rate test and a subjective questionnaire. And really the subjective questionnaire is the key component to it. And from by using this test every day, we get a really good idea of how much fatigue the athlete is experiencing and what their stress levels are uh, on a day-to-day basis. And we can see how training affects that too. You know, so if we give them, you know, um, a 20 on the stress index and we see that their fatigue is going up, 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 them okay well that's too much you know we need to dial it down a little bit let's reduce the the stress index to 17 or something like that and see if that kind of balances things out Mm -hmm. you know so we kind of play with those variables in that way you know so if you have an athlete who's getting really psyched up um, if it's causing them problems in terms of accumulating too much fatigue then we're going to see that in their in their monitoring results and we'll be able to make some training adjustments from there um However, if they're getting really psyched up and, you know, everything's fine, then everything's fine. You know, we don't need to adjust anything. Mm. So um, I guess we're just accounting for those things in other ways. You know, it's kind of similar to age. You know, we get asked this question quite a bit. You know, hey, I'm I'm an older lifter. Uh, You know, I'm X years old. You know, what sorts of training adjustments do you think I should make? Well, I wouldn't make any adjustments based on age. Like age itself is not a problem. Now, age is is often paired with recovery issues, which is really what they're asking about most of the time. And that can be a problem, but it's not a problem for everybody. So if we're curious about recovery issues, let's measure recovery, you know, and then we can make appropriate training choices for that individual you know, without, you know, making uh, some sort of blanket assumption that, you know, athletes over X years old need a training reduction. And then you apply that and, and you know, maybe that's right for most people, but it's not right for all people, you know. And, and it's just, um, it's an ill-fitting suit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it, I think a lot, a lot of things kind of fall into that category. Yeah, yeah. That was, that's very, very interesting stuff, though, just in terms of, you know, in terms of just considering you know, the personality try to, and then, you know, so you're saying the train stress versus psychological stress would be two big things. And 
obviously it, it is handy as you said with the track you know it is great to have a certain trends that you can kind of look at over time and get more of a, a picture into how this individual is responding to to training and to outside external stressors so um yeah it's just it's great just to you know see how your thought processes have developed uh, it, like so you're obviously very well known for auto regulation um which obviously as we just touched on there in terms of volumes and then also intensities and training you know, they are kind of the way that in itself is going to be really dictating the volumes really on a moment-to-moment basis but uh this concept of um there's two concepts i want to actually ask first one asks you, you came up with this kind of this like is a fatigue factor where you, I, I thought i heard you speak about one time where you might work up to your top set one day and then instead of saying do three or four back off sets at you know minus 10 you, you might say keep going until you hit a certain rpe and these drop offs which i found was very like when i read that i was like that's genius because like yeah cause, cause I, th- there's a day where like you'd be like i can get after this like I, I, you know like, I, I, like there's six right. there's seven back off sets here and let's say maybe if hypertrophy was it's it, this could be a, a block that's further out from the important competition it's okay to hit that extra bit of volume because i feel good that day and then if you didn't feel good that day, maybe there's only one in the tank. So I just I just found it was a really, really interesting concept. So maybe just like that's that's the kind of stuff where I'm like you just woke up in the night, had a dream, like, hmm, this is <laughs> this concept is it? yeah, why did no one think of this? So I like, I remember myself and Cam again, the the, 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 the friend who I, who I work with, um my, my brother from another mother, the guy who I work with in the college, like we were speaking about that and he was like, That's very, very like intuitive, I like that. Like so the only question I have on that then is Sometimes then you like you know yourself you feel great, and you might overdo it a little bit, and then that might fuck up the next two or three sessions maybe to a degree. Right. So, but we, we can talk about that maybe in the tail end. But maybe just come up with how you came up with that sort of uh, fatigue factor. Is that the name you gave it? Fatigue factor. Or fatigue it's a uh, fatigue percentage. percentages. Yeah, percentages. Yeah, fatigue yeah. percentages. Um, and it's just a way to to measure how tired are you getting uh, from a given protocol. You know, yeah. so we we can measure your top set. And then uh, we measure each set after that and uh, compare it against your best performance and then see how, uh, like how those comparisons are made. Uh, it'll give you a percentage, and that percentage is how much fatigue are you doing. So, you know, 1% isn't very much. You know, 5% is where we tended to go most of the time. And then if you're doing a high stress day, maybe it's 7% or 10% or, or something like that. You know, 10% fatigue is a lot of fatigue. Yeah. Um, that means that your last set, um, for example, you might be using 10% less weight and the same reps and it produces the same RPE. Yeah. You know, so you've accumulated so much fatigue that, um, it's, 10% less weight, but the same reps and the same RPE, you know. Um, now, truth be told, we've kind of gotten away from doing fatigue percents. Okay. And a lot of it is for the reason that, that you're saying is that um, most of the time, the results of fatigue percents lead to your training volume being pretty much uh, within a certain pretty narrow range, you know. Yeah. So, um a given fatigue percent might result in one drop set uh, or maybe two drop sets, you know, but it's usually one or two. It's usually not like one or seven, you know, <laughs> um, but occasionally you could have those days where you end up doing seven drop sets and that does affect subsequent training sessions, you know? So it's a way to, to kind of figure out, you know, how 
much uh, how fatigue resistant is this athlete? But the question comes like, for what purpose uh, are we measuring that? Yeah. You know. So the idea is that you know if you do if you accumulate more fatigue, it takes longer to recover, which I think is a pretty good assessment. But it's also a little bit of overfit. You know, it's I think it's true that your recovery rate fluctuates day to day. You know, but if we try to match your training to the absolute daily recovery rate, I don't think that's completely necessary. It's not realistic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, actually, I don't think it's at all necessary now that I think about it. But um, what we've been doing lately is, you know, we've been using track. So we're monitoring more like your week to week recovery. You know, we want to make sure that we're not giving you so much work that you're unable to recover week to week, you know, but it's, it's more tied to that average recovery rate. We know that this is about where you're going to be. Some days you're recovering better. Some days you're recovering worse. And so there will be some fluctuations in how much stress you're carrying at any given moment, but it's not that much. It's usually within a pretty narrow range, you know, so it makes it simpler for the athlete. You know, I tell them do three down sets, you know, uh, versus, you know, five to 7% fatigue or something like that. Yeah. So they go and they do three down sets and they don't have to calculate anything, um, you know, between sets or anything like that. So it makes it a little simpler for them. And it gives me on the coaching end a bit better control over how much volume, how much work are they actually being assigned. So I think that there's some value in it. And it's an idea that I'm probably going to come back to. And I may want to mess around with it, change it, reincorporate it in some way. But um, for now, we've kind of put it on pause for a little bit. We haven't really used that method um, recently. But, you know, I, I think there's something there. I just kind of haven't, haven't had a, uh, a good chance to really tease out what it might be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another sort of tweak on the, the way you, you usually prescribe your training. So you like to, when I train with you, you used to kind of like do an open set at seven, the next set at eight, the next set at kind of nine, then it goes back off, so we don't back off. So that's one trend that was commonly in my training. So, so sometimes, though, this is just me, like, like, and it's a psychological thing that I know that if I was to hit the top set first and then got to hit my back off sets, I'd feel better for it. You know? Or it just it's psychological because it's kind of like, fuck, there was my seven. It's like, oh, I have to hit eight now, and now I've hit a nine. And so what, what I've toyed around with some other times is I work up to that top set and then I'll hit my back off sets. Or sometimes what I do is I'll work up to a heavy single that will be above my first seven and then go seven, eight, top set, and then back then. But the single won't be fatiguing. It's just like something that will just be above it. Just, it's almost like post-activation post potentiation type sort of deal or just yeah. a, a neural thing. Like, So it, have you ever toyed around with either hitting that top set first or maybe hitting something just that, if you know, just a nearly like just to potentiate even before you maybe you do your build-up or have you ever had thoughts about that or played around yeah. there? Yeah, we actually use the singles really, really frequently, um, even to the point where for some lifters it's like, okay, we've been using that for kind of a long time now. Let's <laughs> maybe get away from it a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Um, but I, and, and I like the idea of having that benchmarking set. You know, even if it's not a single, it's a triple or a set of five or whatever, but something that you do in that, uh, is easily comparable 
uh, from week to week, and you can see how the athlete's progressing. And that tells you a lot. Like, actually knowing whether the athlete is progressing on a week-to-week basis, is it actually turns out as super valuable. Mm. Um, but that's maybe uh, another topic. But um, where that originally came from, this tendency to go uh, 7RPE, 8RPE, 9RPE, was because I had a – let's say I give you a, a certain protocol. I tell you I want you to go to the gym, and the real goal – is for you to work up to a five rep set at a nine RPE. Yeah. You know, what I would find is that a lot of lifters would go to the gym and they would do singles all the way up and then just take a shot at whatever they thought five reps at a nine would be. Yeah. And they would be wrong quite a bit. You know, um, you know, if your goal is to do five reps at a nine, you really shouldn't ever miss, you know, like, Maybe one workout in a year, you're going to have yeah. missed weight, yeah. you know. But if you're wrong on that, it's going to be a 10 RPE or something like that. It shouldn't be a miss. But I was finding that lifters were missing. And, and the reason is they didn't have those workup sets to gauge bad days, yeah. you know. And they also didn't have the workup sets to gauge good days either because you would find that as well. Say they're supposed to do 10 reps at a 10 RPE. Well, they do 10 reps and it's an 8 RPE, you know, and that's pretty far off, you know. So that's why I started programming programming it in that way. So first you do a 7 RPE, then an 8 RPE, then a 9 RPE. So that 7 and 8 provides volume. Uh, it also provides two checkpoints for you to kind of see how things are going and make some adjustments on that top, uh, top set. Um, and then thirdly, kind of considering that for a lot of people that are training for a competition, um, it kind of conditions you for that top set being the third one. Yeah. Um, so, so there's that aspect to it as well. Now, with that said, um, training people uh, up and doing that benchmarking set, um, single at an 8 RPE seems to be the most common one for us to use. And then backing off directly and doing a rep set after that, that's definitely something that we do. Uh, we use quite a bit. I really like it as a method. You know, I think having some exposure to those heavier weights is is really crucial. And we played around with doing, you know, heavier singles, like single at a 9 RPE, and found that it's pretty short-lived. You know, like, you can take a single at an 8 RPE, like, week in, week out, for a long period of time. Yeah. You know, a single at a 9 RPE, you're going to get a couple weeks. You know, depending on the lifter, I'd say between two and five weeks. You know, it's a much shorter amount of time than what you would get for a single at an 8 RPE. Um, so we've opted mostly for singles at 8 RPE because it doesn't seem to disrupt uh, the total training time. Uh, it's a little bit faster to do. It's still heavy enough that you get the benefits from doing it. You know, and so single at an 8 RPE is also um, slightly heavier than what you would take as an opener, say. You know, so then when you actually go to the competition and you take an opener, um, you're super confident with it yeah. because you've hit it in training all the time. And actually, this is about 20 pounds lighter. You know, and so yeah, the openers, you know, no question. Second attempt, uh, it gets your attention, and that third attempt really gets your attention, which is exactly how I would want a, an athlete to be. I want them to be super confident in their opener, and then for that second attempt. We're focusing on it a little bit more, and then 
uh, it's really pretty easy to, to get psyched up for that third attempt in that case. Yeah, yeah. So, and just like to, like, and I think you got just for listeners to clarify. So, when I hit a single, the single's always like heavier than the reps. That, like, so, like, if I was going to do triples at 160 kilo on deadlift, I'd hit a single at 170 and back off. So, I, I'd never go like single up to 150 and then go right triple at 160. Because you said guys were like, oh, I only got two there or whatever, or one. Because right. they didn't gauge it, so that kind of way. So I'd, I'd always overshoot that single, because and again, it's that kind of potentiation effect. I've just been playing around with it. That's all. Like, um, yeah. And I just, just we'll we'll go even more than that though. A lot of times, so um, you know, it, it's a bit longer break. You know, maybe a five minute or maybe even a bit longer uh, rest period between the single and the subsequent rep set. Yeah, so I'm not yeah. sure how much. Yeah like actual post-activation potentiation I'm getting uh, in the way that I program it. But um, that single, like for example, for me on the bench um, here this week, I did a single at an 8 RPE at about 460 pounds. And then I backed off to my rep work, was, which was in the low 300s. You know, so there's a big change in weight, you know. Yes. Uh, so, and, and that's fine. That's fine with me. Yeah. Um, but I want to get some exposure to the heavier weights for the single. And then the rep work is what it is. And that's whatever I need to do for, for the rep work, yeah. you know, but, uh, I almost handle those as kind of two separate things. But then that single does tell you something about the rep work as well. If your single is off, then you know that the rep work is probably going to be off yeah. as well. Uh, and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. True. Like yeah, I, I find it some days a nice gauge to, you know, kind of tells me where I'm at. Like just, yeah. Wise or, um, for sure, yeah. In, in t- you just mentioned rest periods there, and that kind of came up with, with another question, is that in, in some of the other programs that I I, uh, I got, and just for listeners, and all Mike coached me for, for six months online, and it was brilliant. Like, I, I, It's funny, because I always tell other coaches, get a coach, and it's like, because it's like a mentorship. It was like a six-month mentorship. I was learning all these things, and then I was always wrecking your head every week with our, with our phone calls. I had all of these questions, you know? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's good. That's yeah, great. that's what's Because it was great, because I, I just it was an education, and I learned so much, um, just just about getting strong and the concepts and your way of thinking, and, and again, it's it's not yeah. that it's not that your way is the only way. And I know you'd say that it's, it was just another way of looking at, at the at the same topic. But uh, one For thing sure. I, I found very interesting was you start to put these twenty minute caps on like certain blocks of through like you know, you've got this squat to do, and I'm giving you twenty minutes to do it. And I think what was that born out of? I remember like some of the threads in the form were like. How long are people taking between sets? And people are like, oh, I think about you know two, three minutes. You know, no more than five. It's very heavy. Other people are like, what? I take like sometimes seven or eight. And people are like, what? You take seven or eight? What? How long are your sessions and all this? So again, it's gonna right. it's gonna be obviously again context. It depends. Bigger, stronger guys who are putting out more force and causing more damage, and you know they're probably gonna need to rest longer between sets. But I like the way you started to put some of these kind of twenty minute caps on certain certain. Um, yeah, uh, in, in certain well, problems. So, what, like maybe what I had to get away from that. Go ahead. Eventually, because we were running into a problem where uh, some of the volumes that we were having people do were not really compatible with you know a twenty minute cap or yeah. you know, and then you're you're adjusting the length of the cap and it kind of gets a little <laughs> bit messy and it's like well. Why don't you just talk about rest periods like a normal human? <laughs> but you, this, so, you, you experiment and learn. I, I, yeah. I, I assume it's still something you probably could do more in a volume block, maybe, where you, you yeah. want maybe a little more work capacity. or. or well, 
I mean, the, the, the original idea behind the cat was because for an easier set, you need you don't need as much that's, rest. That's, yeah, the and then for a harder there. set, yeah. you need more. Yeah. And I wanted people to have that flexibility, but not not get ridiculous. Yes. You know. So what I ended up doing um, a few months ago, I, I guess, I'm not sure exactly when, but uh, I built a chart that compared an RPE to a rest period. You know, so for example, if you're at a six RPE, you just did a set, and it's six RPE or less, then you should rest about a minute. Seven RPE should be about two minutes, and, and so on. You know, um, up to a nine RPE was about four minutes, and then a ten RPE was as long as you need. You know, um, now that's kind of there's a lot of slop. You know, in, yeah. anytime you're talking like that, right? So deadlift is going to be longer typically. Yeah. Uh, bench is going to be shorter. Yeah. Um, Squat in between. Though. Right. Yeah, and then. Like you were saying, uh, somebody that's in great condition is going to be shorter. Uh, somebody who's bigger and stronger is going to be a bit longer. You know, so there's a lot of other factors that kind of influence it, but it's really an idea, right? Like it's just trying to put forth this idea that, hey, if you just did an easier set, then you don't need very long. If you just did a harder set, then give yourself some time. Yeah. You know, if you're warming up, then generally – Load and lift, you know, why, I mean, <laughs> I went down uh, to Florida, it's been kind of a while ago, and I trained with uh, Dr. Zordos, he's a good friend of mine, and um, we were in there training, and I always give him a hard time, because he takes forever between sets, so like, <laughs> 10, 10, 15 minutes rest periods between sets. On his phone, like, is he on his phone, on Twitter? Um, well, this was in his lab, so he probably had work to do, <laughs> but, but still, um, even like the warmups, he was taking a really long time and I was kind of, you know, poking at him a little bit. And I remember telling him like, uh, such and so uh, I was talking to, him, uh, Boris Shako and he was saying that, you know, anything below 50% is just load and lift. And he, uh, he was telling me, you know, how the research that they've done shows that it doesn't matter, you know, take as long as you need, take as short as you want. It doesn't really matter. Rest periods aren't a big factor in the training results, you know, which fine, you know, Hey, that's cool. You know, but it's a matter of, and, and he would agree with this as well. It's just a matter of how much time do you have to spend in the gym? Yes, yeah. You know, like the sessions that I program, uh, not for everybody. Like some people come to me and they're like, Hey, I've got time constraints. I can't train longer than an hour, hour and a half or whatever. And, and of course you, you can oblige that, but just kind of default guided programming stuff, uh, that, that we do a lot of sessions are going to be two, two and a half hours. And you don't want that to turn into three or four hours. So chop your rest periods when you can, you know, it, it's got a nice side effect. It makes you actually feel like you did something, you know, um, you get a little bit out of breath, but yeah, you know, at, at the end of the workout, you know, you feel pretty good. Yeah, I mean, um, that's that's pretty much how the train with me is that you know when I build up the heavy ones, then obviously the back offs. Like so, my heavy, heavy, like it was just real heavy that day, three or five minutes if needed, and then the back offs were only ever like two minutes between, and it was a little more yeah. like general strength hypertrophy type stuff. And what what I actually loved in in your program was like uh, the assistance work. I kind of 
I really like that sort of like six to nine rep range for like four to five sets, you know. So like you had a lot of that in kind of more of the assistance and auxiliary work, which I like. Um, but just for, for I'm gonna ask about some uh, assistance work in a second, but before I just move off from that, like so I, I was over at Altus for three months uh, under Sim McMillan, the sprint coach, and, and Stu likes to use this concept of Parkinson's law. So like he he would say like. So Parkinson's law is basically like you have a certain amount of time to do work in and like the, the more constrained your time is, the more quality work you usually do. So he used it as an auto-regulation thing. So he'd be like, right, you've got 20 minutes and I want you to get as many sets of three in the squat in 20 minutes as you can. And he's like, if the athletes were fatigued that day, they'd auto-regulate. They might only do eight sets. I don't care. That's all they do that day. And he's like, whereas days it felt great, they might have got 12 sets in or you know, whatever in 20 minutes. And I've actually currently, just because I train on my, my lunch break, and so, uh, and I'm doing a bit of Olympic lifting now, like just, and I'm not a great Olympic lifter, I'm just kind of learning as I go along. So what I've done is I, I, I've chopped it into these window blocks because I only have an hour. So I do 20 minutes skill, which is my Olympic lifting, 20 minutes of strength, which is my whatever, my squat, my deadlift, my front squat that day, and then 20 minutes, quote unquote, hypertrophy conditioning. But for the, for the strength work, I, I keep to your kind of model of my, my, my seven, eight, nine, and then so I have 20 minutes dedicated, and that's warm up the three top sets. So like yesterday, I was able to do a deadlift where I went uh, 155, 160, 162 for triples, and then I got an extra three back offsets within the 20 minute block window. Um, yeah. So like I, and and so but like another day I might get four or five or six back offsets. Just yesterday was a kind of medium day. I didn't feel terribly fatigued. I didn't feel like the world's on fire, so I got six total sets in. Whereas Another day it could be five, another day it could be like nine. So I kind of use the time window. But again, the back office yeah. has a shorter rest period. So I just found that Parkinson's Law thing was good. And then kind of going off those 20 minute caps that you played around with, it was kind of like a similar kind of concept in a way, maybe. See, I could see that being really good, like a, a really good way to keep you focused. Yeah. You know, I've thought about doing that before and I've, I've heard, you know, it, you hear everything about Chinese weightlifting, right? But, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. And it's uh, just this uh, amorphous thing that uh, people pin training ideas it'd be, on. It'd be like one of those things where you go there and go, I hear you guys do this. And like, no. I was like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, like Bulgarians, you, you guys do this? No, that's not what we don't know. No. Right, yeah. Well, I, I mean, not to get too far off topic, but I think that that's uh, uh, it's not a homogenous thing. It's not like there's only one Chinese method of weightlifting. Exactly. Like I think there's a lot of different things that fall under that umbrella. But that is one thing that I've, that I've heard that, uh, you know, you've got 20 minutes or 30 minutes or something. You do as much work as you can, you can do within that time frame. You know, I think that's a great way of, of keeping an athlete focused. And I've thought about doing that more, you know, kind of extending that concept a bit more. Um, I, I, for me, I, for sure want to think it through a bit more, but I, I think it's going to have some interesting implications. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of reminds me of, uh, density training a little bit, which yeah. is another thing that yeah. we do quite a bit. Well, not quite a bit. We do it from time to time. Um, it's more hypertrophy oriented though, when we do it, you know, so like I'll set like a 12 minute timer or something, you have a fixed weight on the bar, and you do as many total repetitions as you can in 12 minutes, yeah. you know? So one thing that that turns into, um, when you do it enough, you figure out ways to optimize it. Yeah. You know, um, one thing that I've done is, you know, I've found that keeping the RPE 
around a six or seven, really a seven, I think is, is probably about ideal because then it gets you a good amount of reps for each set. And every, cause every time you're setting up under the bar, that's energy expended, you know? So you're getting a good amount of volume for each setup. Um, but it's not so hard that it requires you to take a really extended rest period, you know? So that's one way I've found of kind of optimizing that. Now that's kind of more oriented toward, um, hypertrophy, you know, cause we're putting like a, like a 10 RM or a 12 RM in the bar, you know? <clears throat> so you'll get 30, 40, 45 reps in 12 minutes, you know, depending on the day. Yeah. Um, now it would be really cool. I think really interesting to kind of take it the other direction, put a five rep max on the bar and go for 15 or 20 minutes. You know, it's going to lead to a much different outcome than, uh, you know, a 12 RM in 12 minutes, you know? So uh, would, that, would, I think would, that's a really cool idea. Like are, are you thinking, are you thinking of that type of stuff for the, the main movement or more in the accessory hypertrophy stuff? Uh, this is, we use it currently. Definitely. It's a, a supplemental movement. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's um, what I'm and I keep saying it's, it's hypertrophy oriented. It is, but I mean, I don't think there would be a big, like I just mentioned about rest periods. Like, I don't think there would be a big hypertrophy difference if you did the same amount of work in 20 minutes versus 12 minutes. Yeah, so I, I don't yeah. think it's that. I think the limited rest period allows you to get a lot of work in quickly. The specific adaptation for that, I think is uh, specific work capacity or special work capacity. Yeah. It trains you to tolerate shorter rest periods, yeah. you know, which is beneficial in itself. So you get a nice hypertrophy benefit. Uh, and it trains you to, to handle short rest periods. So that's kind of why I use it as a supplemental movement in the training that we do. But, you know, I do think it's a cool concept. It's a thing that I'd like to play with some more as far as, um, you know, you mess around with the time variable, um, and that affects your total workload. Yeah. And uh, you mess around with the weight on the bar, and it obviously affects your intensity. So yeah. just kind of a, a different way of, manipulating those variables and you could do it for a main movement in that sense. Like you don't want to do like the 12 minute density work. You know, I wouldn't really want to do that with say deadlifts. You know, I have done it for straight leg deadlifts and it was probably a bad decision. Um, I've done it for trap bar deadlifts. And, I mean, that's just brutal, brutal work, you yeah. know? Um, but you know, extend the time, change the weight parameters a bit. You know, now you can probably manage it for a more technical movement. Like you said, you're, you're doing it for a very technical movement, you know, so uh, that's, that's interesting to me. Now, and what I will say again, it's, it's regular. The only reason I'm doing it on the Olympic bits is purely because of time constraints. Like I, I did, I wouldn't have, I, I, I was about to say the same thing to you and you just said it. Like I'd be more of the opinion of leaving the, the, the main lift to more of the, if you just want to say for the traditional setup of the way we're doing it, of, you know, having your ramp up set and then your main set and then your back off. And I'd see maybe that 20 minute thing, particularly if you're going to start introducing some of the program, I'd introduce in the assistance work first on either, you know, lesser skilled movements, movements with lesser kind of total load in the system, yeah. more sort of quote unquote hypertrophy assistance type work. And, you know, if you were, this would be me now, if I was going to put it in, in a main movement, it'd probably again be more in a, a you know, an accumulation block or a, or a volume week. Or something yeah. like that, rather than like if we're really trying to open intensity now and stabilize stabilize skill under heavier loads, uh, where I you know I think you're better off auto regulating just actual rest periods in between each attempt. But yeah, no, I just I just found it very very interesting. Um, 
Um, so yeah, it's, and again, something I'm playing around with, and I just found it was another way to auto regulate. And that listen, you have this time window. I don't care what what you get in as long as quality work. The only problem with that, and I'm sure you you'll agree with this. I was just thinking about it as you were speaking there, is again going back to personality traits. Now, obviously, like you're getting people who obviously are seeking coaching, and they're probably usually fairly intrinsically motivated people anyway. But like, let's say like if you were a coach with a group of athletes and they're gone away for the summer, and you give them their programs to follow. And, you know, every team has that lazy fucker. And it's just like, you know, when you leave those people to auto-regulate, it's always like, yeah, you know, you give me 20 minutes and I did, uh, I think I did three sets and uh, this is the way it lifts. Like, you did three warm-up sets in 20 minutes. Whereas, you know, then, know, right. you know, you'll get the other warrior on the team then who's like, yeah, I got like 22 sets in and like this one is like, what the hell? is You know, so I suppose you kind of need someone with that bit of common sense maybe as well. Like, so... Well, it's, it's an interesting concept because you, you do leave a lot more up to the lifter. Yeah. And it would be interesting to test that as an idea. It's, like, it's, it's like RPE too, Mike. You know yourself. I mean, you've often spoke about RPE isn't really for the very newbie because they don't really know what right. a card is. And then you could always get that other guy, like the guy we're kind of speaking about earlier, the adrenaline junkies who are like, you know, they're failing. And it's like, I had you down for nine. And you were like, as you said earlier, you should not be missing nine. Nine is not ten. Right. 10 is right. 10, you don't even miss 10, 10 means you got it, 10, 10.1, 10.1 is when you missed. <laughs> but the, the thought that there's, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that there's some personality, some um, something that gets to emerge from that sort of protocol. Yeah. Uh, I made a, a Facebook post about something similar to this this week. I noticed in myself um when I'm training for a competition, it could be any competition, just that there's a date on the horizon and there's a, this program is leading toward that. Yeah. Your training changes and it's not a conscious decision. You know, it's, it's something that's very subconscious. Um, in, in all cases, whether there's a meet or not, like I'm trying, you know, I want to get better and I know that, you know, um, trying hard is better than not trying hard, you know, so I don't want to waste my time in the gym. So I'm, I'm trying to push it, but it changes when there's a date on the calendar that says on this date, I need to be in shape on weight. You know, I need to show up and and be ready to lift. Um, and I'm more willing to push myself. I'm more willing, um, to make myself uncomfortable and, Again, it's it's not a conscious thing. It's not like I think about it. It's not that oh, there's a meet. I better start training hard. It's not that. It's 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 a, a subtle subconscious influence yeah. that that I see that makes an impact in my training. And I would expect that that's similar uh, in something like what you're talking about, where you have that freedom to determine how many sets you're going to do. You know that. If you have the added pressure of a competition coming up or anything that you know pushes you a bit, that you're going to get more work in. Uh, the work is going to be a bit more focused, you know. Um, whereas if you if you don't have that, your tendency to kind of lay back, take a couple more minutes. Ah, oh, well, I ran out of time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's only one set here and one set there, but you know, after a training cycle, that stuff adds up, and it's it's not negligible. Yeah, yeah. Just on uh, on it cover hypertrophy, and then also want to get your thoughts on, on tapering and peaking because I listened to one of your last podcasts there, and you guys were talking about this concept of tapering and peaking. 
or one of the one of the episodes I listened to today, you have some interesting thoughts on tapering and beepering, which which were no like they weren't new to me. I've heard I've heard lots of conversations and I had lots of conversations about peaking and tapering with Dan Fath at all because he has his own ideas. Like a, a big yeah. kind of interest of mine at the moment is like fatigue and fitness decay times and training residuals and like the fitness fatigue factor or, or the two the two model factor of fitness fatigue and this idea of stimulus recovery adaptation or some people call it stimulus fatigue recovery adaptation or you know how that's there's so much built-in variability that and i also think that we just really we really haven't sat down and thought this whole fatigue thing through in terms of like like i think like i think most people are like they, they think that they detrain a lot quicker than they do like people are like geez if i don't do that in like you know if i don't lift it in two days my strength gains are all gone it's like we were like there's people who like for whatever reason, they couldn't do their actual training properly for a week, 10 days, and they go and set a world record in some event. And it's like, you know, like, it's like, I just think fatigue is just, it's a very, very interesting area. And obviously, again, it's context, you know, it's individual. And because obviously, you know, beginner versus advanced, the bigger, stronger people create more homeostatic disruption in training. Therefore, their fatigue times will be longer than somebody who isn't causing much homeostatic disruption. On, on, on. Anyway, I'm blabbing on here. With hypertrophy, um, your program uh, your program definitely is built around this concept of, of specificity and you you are you seem to be big on obviously like getting the biggest transfer from the assistance work into the into the main list um but a lot of the main movements there are a lot they're still heavy barbell movements and do you find that there might be some guys maybe more more there maybe more weekend warriors or they've been on the road longer than someone else that their joints just can't handle like a lot of more extra barbell moves and you might have to supplement more of their work with maybe more dumbbell or kind of more higher rep stuff outside of the maybe maybe they're still hitting heavy heavy main lifts and getting that that work in there and maybe their assistance work needs to be a little more like tailor where you know less barbell less cns stress and then kind of more like you know softer variations you want to put it that way in terms of more dumbbell less joint stress type work do you, do you hence and see it might have to do that with some lifters yeah we do um Again, we can dial the whole the whole system so that it's producing a, a stress level that that they can cope with. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's interesting, right? Because on one level, you know, some movements certainly do seem to be easier to recover from. Yeah. Uh, for example, you know, look at the difference between a, a belt squat and a high bar squat, yeah. or even better yet, a belt squat and a safety bar squat. You know, now there are a lot of variables that have shifted in this example. You know, for one, you know, a belt squat uses a lot less weight and a safety bar squat uses a lot more weight. You know, um, I suppose it depends on what sort of belt squat machine you're using uh, or if you're using a machine at all. But um, the point is the weight on the system matters. Maybe that's not a real great example. Let's say. Uh, lunges versus safety bar squats. You know, both of them tax the legs. Both of them uh, tax the quads specifically. You know, one has a lot more spinal loading than another. Yeah. You know, so there's there's that aspect of it. Then there's the total weight on the system. You know, um, there's additional um, changes to the to the emphasis. You know, like so, say a, a lunge is going to be almost entirely, you know leg and glute, you know, whereas a, a safety bar squat's going to have a really strong uh, erector component to yeah. it, you know, so yeah. they're not, it's not a perfect example, but 
Well, the, 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 this is the point. On the bar, that's, that's the point I'm trying. Out, right? uh, yeah, that, that's the point I'm trying to get across. That's kind of the example is that you know the the maybe the guy who's a little bit more beat up and older, and you know, safety bar might just take a little bit too much recovery from him, causes the extra back stress and the extra load. And, you know, would would he be better served like getting that leg stress through like the lunge because less spine load, and even though it won't have as much transfer maybe to the squat. It still allows him to get a little more extra volume in and doesn't beat him up as much, maybe, you know? Just using right. that as a hypothetical example of someone, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that's a that's a really good point, to be honest. You know, the the this whole idea of, of stress index that we were talking about earlier yes. does not take into account the movement or the absolute weight on the bar. Yeah. Um, and that may be a limitation for how we're doing it now, or it may just be that hey, it's one metric and it doesn't try to account for every variable, you know. Um, so it's intended to, to be designed as kind of a, a rough estimation, you know. So you could have somebody do, you know, three sets of 10 at a nine RPE lunges and then do the same protocol for safety bar squats. And safety bar squats are going to be a lot more, they're going to have a, a much higher recovery cost, mm-hmm. you know. But I don't think it's going to be, you know, incomparable. Yes. You know, it's it. They're gonna. It's gonna be higher. It's gonna be notably higher. But they're gonna be in the ballpark. You know, you could say the same thing as like uh, Romanian deadlifts versus glute ham raises or something, something like that. You know, mm-hmm. um, so your skill in the movement matters as well. You know, uh, another thing that I found is that powerlifters in general tend to be pretty bad at front squats. And since they're bad at front squats, front squats aren't that taxing because they can't use enough weight for it to be that meaningful, you know, um, just, and that's just more of a, a skill component, I think. Whereas yeah. if you take somebody who's got more skill at that movement, then it, it actually can be taxing, you know? So there's things like that to consider, but yeah, it, sorry, it seemed like you want to interject no, real quick. No, no, yeah, no, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you look like you want to. Oh, no, 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 no. I was just, no, no, you go but, ahead. Well, I, I didn't want to uh, leave the topic if, if there was more to, to discuss there, but I thought, you know, kind of to your original question about um, including more of these supplemental movements, um, I, in a normal training session, training uh, period, I kind of think of uh, three different categories of movements. I think of your competition exercise, which yeah. tends to be pretty self-explanatory. I think of assistance exercises, which to me are the same movement as your competition exercise, but maybe one or sometimes two small tweaks to it to yeah. have a certain emphasis. So we're talking things like uh, pause squats or pin presses or uh, deadlifting with chains or something like that. Yeah. And then the third category would be supplemental movements. These are movements that are, are different significantly from the competition exercise, but they tend to stress the same uh, muscles, uh, somewhat the same energy systems, uh, depending on, yeah, well, somewhat the same energy systems. This is, like, if you're familiar with the Bonderchuk classification yeah, chart, yeah, yeah, yeah. it fits that pretty nicely. So competition exercise, um, special, development, special developmental, special and special preparatory. Yeah. You know, um, I don't, tend to include general exercises uh, in G- normal G- training G- sessions. GPP days, you, you do that on your GPP days. Yeah, yeah. So GPP would count, but like in a normal training session, you tend yeah, not to I have yeah. general exercises. But um, in a given week, I'll try to have at least one movement 
from each category yeah. for the squat, for the deadlift, and for the bench press. You know, and the bench press is special because it, it tends to get two, really, for each category. Um, but, yeah, yeah. that's kind of how I, I shape that. Yeah, and you, 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 know, mentioned, so that, you mentioned that in our previous podcast, so that's how you classify your exercise. I love that classification. Because um, yeah. even even I saw a day take presentation, it's on YouTube, maybe two, three years ago, and he was the same. He was like, to him, he saw it the same way. For some, he's like, there's my competition lift. He's like, my assistance work builds my competition lift. And he's like, my auxiliary work then is is just, it, it, he was like, it's the same muscles, but they're different movements in terms of the assistance and definitely different in terms of the main lift. So he was kind of like, the auxiliary work kind of, you know, develops the connected tissues and it's a bit of like offset and imbalances and it's general hypertrophy work. And that helps set a little bit of foundation for the assistance work. And he's like, then the assistance work should have high, a high transfer into the main movement. So uh, I, I like that classification, and obviously, uh, you know, I experienced it with your programs. But even even in your own programs, like they were still in the ones I got, there were still very little actual like dumbbell type accessory work. That's that's kind of what I'm getting at. In terms of- yeah, well, that's a thing that's changed a bit, uh, especially for the bench. You know, we include more stuff that is further down the specificity okay. chain. Yeah. You know, that's at times, you know, we still will include things like wide grip benching or something like that, yeah, which, yeah. you know, I would say you take a wide grip bench and you do it for 10 or 12 reps, you know, that's supplemental movement. That, like yeah, that's exactly. not, yeah. we're not talking about assistance exercise at that point. You know, now, um, when we're talking about say squat, supplemental movements for the squat, um, I've been programming a lot more direct quad work lately. So it's less stuff like probably what you used to see was stuff like, more squats, high bar squats, um, you know, safety bar squats and stuff like that. Well, it's less stuff like that now and more stuff like, uh, leg press or hack squat. If you have one, uh, belt squat would be valid if you have one, um, front squats, um, single leg work. Uh, we are not shy about putting single leg work in that supplemental slot. I think it's good quad development, but I also think it's good for, uh, just general health of the lifter. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's good for keeping the lifter healthy, but, um, deadlift, we still do a lot of, uh, snatch grip, straight leg deadlifts, uh, which is a horribly taxing movement, but you get a lot of bang for your buck out of it. Yeah. You know, it's one movement, but it, it trains a lot of different things and it fills a lot of different, uh, blanks in the program. Hope you know? hate that exercise. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's brutal, you know, like if there's one movement that's going to leave me just laying on the floor gasping for breath, it's snatch grip, straight leg deadlift, some kind of straight leg deadlift for like 12 reps. That'll do it, man. <laughs> yeah, when you, when you use the program, like four sets of nine, one inch deficit or, or two inch deficits, stiff leg deadlifts, like I used to, and I used to keep the rest periods like between two minutes and I was like deep, well, nine, for nine reps, they used to be tough. That's brutal, man. Yeah, that's brutal. They were, they were tough enough. Um, peak and Mike. Uh, so just in terms of like tapering and peaking, I know that you 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 have some thoughts on that. So you maybe want to just touch into that for some of the listeners. Um, sure. Any any particular part of it? Well, just I, I suppose maybe the, the the podcast I listened to to you guys speak about. You were kind of talking about like 
we're kind of biased towards like, oh, you have to peak. Like, what are you doing? Like lifting the week of competition. <laughs> as as my friend Cameron say, you go, what what are you doing, man? You're out. Of your, he's, you're out of your mind. He, what's what's he yeah. doing? That's Cameron. Cameron love that now. He also says, what are you doing, man? Uh, so like you know, people will be like, you should be in the gym. Like you got competition coming up and. Obviously, it's different. Like I know, like Chad Wesley Smith, for instance, like he's such a big, strong dude. Or when when he was lifting at his peak, like his tapers were like two weeks long because he just caused so much fatigue in his training. Whereas, you know, a light fifty-two kilo female, she might only need like a five five day taper or something going into you know, depending again. Like, um, I so. mean, there's there's so much there, you know, and and kind of teasing out which variables matter mm. is is a tough thing to do for tapering and peaking. Yeah. So I, I mean, one thing I can tell you is like we go to IPF worlds and I mean, conceivably you have the biggest, strongest guys in, in the IPF there, you know, and, um, they will have, like, it's gotten to the point where they often have an affiliated gym or a separate training area or something like that, because people are there for a week before they lift yeah. and they need to train, yeah. you know, they're going to train during that, during that week. Like in 2013, um, uh, Ivalo Christov won the, the 120 kilo world championship in Russia. He was, uh, training to a max. Uh, he cut down to like twice a day, um, during that week prior to the competition. But I had heard now, I mean, language is kind of an issue here. I had heard that, uh, he was maxing like three times a day in the, in the training stage leading up to it, you know? So his taper was still like double way more than double what I was doing for my training, you know? So uh, a lot of it depends on what you've done up to that point, you know? Um, but then again, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because early in my career, when I first started doing that, you know, first started training the week of the competition, I would get that a lot. You know, people would be like, why are you even here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you need to, you should be, uh, you should be laying down, you know, or something like that. Yeah, like, yeah. People, I guess people go on bed rests for a week before competition. I didn't know that, but <laughs> apparently some people do. Um, but since then, you know, and it's not that, anything really has changed at the highest levels of powerlifting. I think it's just that my exposure to it changed because when I got up to that level and I started seeing other people doing that same thing, like they're training the week of the competition they're, you know, and now most people aren't doing the thing that Christoph was doing. You know, most people are doing things that are much more typical that you see, uh, raw powerlifters doing these days, you know, the week of the meet, they might go up to openers at some point, but generally they go through their warm-ups a couple times. They're staying familiar with the movements, you know, uh, keeping their head in the game, that kind of thing. Um, and I really think that's a good way to go. You know, of course it does depend on the lifter. You know, um, some lifters do seem to be really sensitive to that tapering period. You know, um, I tend to be one of them. Um, now whether that's, fatigue or something else. I mean, it doesn't really matter what we want to call it. The phenomenon that we see is, um, you know, you have a dramatic taper that week of the competition 
and performance drops below what we expected to see. Then we do another competition where we basically don't taper for it at all, and performance is in line with what we expect to see. You know, so phenomenologically, you know, well, that's a thing that is producing better competition results, so we tend to go in that direction. Now we don't do that with everybody, but if we notice that we have a lifter who, you know, they taper before competition and results are subpar, then we'll kind of bring it up a little bit and and not taper them so much. Mm-hmm. Another way around of doing it, if you if you know how long a lifter takes to peak, um, and, and this is maybe a bit more of a complex topic than, than just this one thing, but so let's almost, say... Almost like a Bondarchuk one, like here he, he has this, like, when you do 33 sessions, we notice when you peak. Oh, it's absolutely that. It's absolutely, it's, it's very much that same concept, mm-hmm. you know. Um, in fact, we, you, the current training model that we've been using a lot lately um, is really, really heavily influenced by, by that system, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll find out how long a lifter takes to peak, and we'll just put the competition on that on that peaking yeah. session, yeah, you know, and then it's trained through, you know, which feels really weird to a lifter who's accustomed to, to tapering yeah. for a competition, you know, to, to more or less train through. It feels really, really strange, but, um, you know, statistically speaking, like if we know that it takes you five weeks to peak and five weeks, bang, five weeks, bang, five weeks, bang. Why do we want to change that dramatically before a big competition, mm-hmm. you know, and say, well, we'll train five weeks and then rest for a week. You know, well, no wonder things are kind of off kilter. You know, like what yeah. more do you expect other than a peak? Yeah. You expect a super peak? Like that happens with some people. So one thing that I've noticed is that people that tend to get get a lot out of their peak, you know, for one, they tend to be meat day performers. So I think they're going to, perform better on meet day than they would in competition regardless, you know, and, and I've worked with people like this, you know, they, maybe they're in training and you think they're good, you know, based on everything, their whole training, you think they're good for a 650 deadlift, you know, and that's a reasonably accurate assertion, you know, maybe they did 625 for a single at a eight RPE or a nine RPE, I guess. Um, you get the idea based on their training. You have a pretty good idea. They're good for a 650 deadlift. Then they show up at a meet and they pull a 700 deadlift. Mm. And you're like, well, where did that come from? They're meet day performer, you know? And if you train them in such a way that you're doing this big, complicated overreaching thing, and then you have a, a extended and dramatic taper and, you know, then they deadlift 715, you know, and you go, Oh, look, look at this. Look how much they got out of their peak. Well, I mean, yeah, they did get a lot out of the peak, but it's not that much more than they would have got anyway. Mm-hmm. It's based on the fact that they're a meat day performer. They're going to get that much. And it's it's more because of the atmosphere of the competition uh, more than the peak itself. Yeah. You know, the, I do think that they're I'm, – I'm not totally negating the idea of this uh, super compensation thing. Like, yeah. I do think that it's a thing that it exists, but I do think it's – really overhyped yes yeah you know yeah it's like oh it's oversimplified it's, it's almost you know it's it's too 
it comes across as too much of a one-size-fits-all sort of approach. Because like the, the big concept I heard from Dan Pfaff originally years ago, and I got to speak to Dan about this, was, and I've seen it too, is that like the body's used to a certain amount of work. And if you just all of a sudden like vastly decrease that work, it's like the body kind of already shuts down. It already goes like overly par- par- parasympathetic, if you were to almost say with someone. Like it's like yeah. it, it nearly shuts down the hibernation mode, and then to like regenerate or reboot the computer day of competition, you've left it almost too late. Because Dan talks about oftentimes like he's like he'd see athletes, and uh, what would happen was that they they wouldn't do anything come up to a meet, and he says right in the in the individual meets in their first heat they they won't qualify because he's like they they the, their system was just too shut down, and he says what happens is then they had a relay race later that day, or or else they had heats for the two hundreds, and he's like they go on and win two hundred. Or they go on and they put a smashing performance in for the one by one hundred, or the or the four by one hundred, because the 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 meat that they bombed out, even though they bombed out, it rebooted the computer, but it was too late then for the one hundreds. But they were still in the two hundred and the four by one hundred. He's like, what happened to one hundred? And he, you know, after years of seeing this, he was like, I think taking like four days off for meat just isn't. We we shouldn't do that with you guys. Yeah. So the the yeah, it needed that little bit of stimulus too, you know, uh, like. Most literature, nearly everything I read, and just from my, my own observations, and again, you know, Jesus, I'm, I'm doing a master's now, so I, I'm reading a lot about scientific methods and confirmation biases and heuristics and statistics. Sure. So we all have our, our biases. So when, when people go, well, I've observed this all my life, it's like, oh, everyone, everyone observes reality differently, so that doesn't really mean anything. But, <laughs> but, uh, um, but even just, like, you know, I, I hate, for real scientific people, they hate this word, but empirically, even just seeing it too, that, like it seems to be volume that that overtra- overtrains or 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 has people under recovered, not so much intensity. And the example I always give to like my football players are well, actually I train hurlers here, but American people don't know hurling is. So go 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 YouTube hurling. It's it's you'll be you'll be interested. <laughs> uh, but what the, the the what I always say to them is that it's intense or it's volume that's going to overtrain or under recovery. It's not so much intensity. And I always use the analogy of let's say we have a very big competition tomorrow. And I said to you, let's go run a 10K. You'd be like, you're out of your fucking mind. I have a big game tomorrow. Where if I said to you, right, this is what we're going to do. We have a big competition tomorrow, and we're just going to do five five meter accelerations. 25 total meters, total volume, five by five meters. Just going to accelerate five meters, but we'll do it as hard as we can after a good warm up, and we're still going to have a competition tomorrow. They'd be like, yeah, I can do that. And like, so the intensity was like maximum, but the volume was like tiny. And yeah, I think yeah. that's uh, I think that's when people like, but even when the, this kind of concept of the New Zealand rugby team, they they kind of popularize this thing of like people start here. Do you hear New Zealand? They go to the gym the day of the game. Are they out of their fucking mind? It's like, do you know what they're doing in the gym? They go in to do like plyos and some Olympic lifting, like really low volume. And then they fuck off. They don't go in and like do massive blitz session on their quads or something. You know. Well, that, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying about stress. Like I think the primary determinants are volume, volume, yeah, and and psychological arousal. So, yeah, I mean, if you, you know, you take a single at something comfortable, you know, you're not going to have a lot of psychological arousal. Yeah. It's a very minimal amount of volume. It's just not that stressful, you know, especially if you're, as long as you're not getting just crazy psyched up for it. Yes. You know, if, and if it's a comfortable single, a 90% single, 93% single even, it shouldn't be that crazy, you know. Uh, it's it's familiar territory. Yeah. You know, it's well within the lifter's capability. Uh, and, go, yeah, yeah, I totally agree that it shouldn't be off the charts. Yeah. And, it, like, in terms of your program, and, and I, I, like, I don't know, but well, I used to go on episodes to go train a team. But I have to leave in about yeah. 10 minutes. But, I said about 10 minutes. 
But in terms of your programming, and I'd love to hear a discussion with you and Mike Isertel on training just on certain concepts because Mike often speaks about you know adaptive resistance, which is just another way of saying the law of accommodation, which is just another way of saying of the law of diminishing returns. And you know your program, your program is highly specific in terms of you, you nearly always seem to have a competition list within the micro cycle, like nearly always. And there could be a case made there for that, you know, you could start to build up a lot of adaptive resistance because it's the same movements over and over yeah. again. Um, so like, and I know you would, in fairness, you do rotate your accessory work quite a bit to get rid of that variation. I remember I asked you that before, is that kind of your way of getting variation in the program and kind of yeah. not, not having that, like trying to off-put nearly accommodation to a degree and you were kind of like, to a certain degree it was. But another concept that I, I'd like to ask, is, is this, I'm trying to understand, is this you're thinking that, so, like, we know that if you max out all the time, like, balls to wall, Bulgarian style, like, that, that is going to have a huge diminishing return at some stage. But at the same time, you spoke about, you know, if you do handle heavy weights regularly, it becomes second nature to you. So it seems to me that you're kind of like, like, it seems to me like a lot of people, like, not, like it's like 90% is like all out max effort. It's kind of like, well, within 90%, there's 90 to 92.5, which is very different to 97.5 to 100%. Like, that's very different. Yeah. So is your concept kind of like, I do believe you do have to be handling heavy weights to get good at it, but it doesn't have to be like max max. It just needs to be in that kind of nice comfort, just underneath, but not so like that. It's it's you're away from it so much. It's just like right in that kind of sweet area. And it's actually funny because Christian Thibodeau, when he was at a seminar here back in end of 2015, he was saying that a lot of this he looked at like this meta analysis or he he got all this literature together and he's like the strongest people generally did a lot of their lifts in between. It was a really funny number. It was like 87 to 93 percent or something like that. He was like saying. That, that that it was so like you know and is that kind of where you're at because you know you're 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 big into eight nine kind of so it's kind of like it's kind of like yeah like we do need to be in around ninety but it doesn't have to be like this like I'm hitting like I'm going for hundred percent every day because that that has a diminished return whereas I don't think you should be between seventy and eighty for a long period of time either because you're getting away from you know that ninety percent range and also there's a concept then of motor control like the skill acquisition under ninety percent plus loads is very different to 70 to 80 versus 60 to 70 obviously as you scale back like is that kind of the, is that, is that the thought process you came to like it shouldn't be like ultra 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 heavy that you're going to like fuck yourself up but it shouldn't be like too underneath that threshold where it's like it's it's now we're it's basically i'm in no man's land i'm not getting what i want either i still want heavy heavy but attainable with enough volume i suppose is that kind of what i, yeah. you know, I came to yeah but that, that range is so different for for different people like oh yeah i've got one one girl on girl one woman i'm training um for worlds coming up and uh i was putting together her program uh for worlds and we went back through all the block reviews that we've done up to this point and mm. one thing that we noticed is like man every time we stick to around 70 to 75 percent for your volume work your lifts go up okay you know like reliably yeah now that's not all she's doing she's doing her assistance work and a lot of times the assistance work will be heavier um, and she's also doing the single at eight RPE, but it's only one single a week. You yeah. know, it's not yeah. a tremendous uh, amount of work. The bulk of the work in her competition lift is 70 to 75%. Right. So it's like, man, we, we just learned something about you and about how you as an individual respond to training. Yeah. And that's different from how other people do it. You know, um, for a lot of people, I find that, yeah, training, getting into that, um, now, Let's assume for a second that that single at 8 RPE is, is a constant. 
uh, as we get nearer to a competition. So they're getting some of that exposure to really heavy weights. And what we're really looking at is where's the bulk of the volume coming from. Yes, yeah, that's, that's now, where I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and for a lot of people, that 85% range is, is a real sweet spot for them. Yeah. You know, even into 90% range. And I've had some people that really thrive a lot on doing the volume work around 90%. Uh, Liz Craven is one of them, but then I've had other people. Uh, he's he's a actually a good lifter, but probably not as well known. Mike Razo, um, he is completely the opposite. <laughs> you know, like for him, when we get into that uh, that higher intensity zone, that ninety percent zone, his lifts just they tank really hard. And I think a lot of it is because the the volume drop that happens when you get into that higher intensity you zone it's just too much yeah, you, you know you can't get the volume at that percentage range. right yeah you can't he can't get the volume that he needs so for him like uh for for megan and mike um they tend to do better even leading into a competition uh with lower intensity work you know even like for mike for example we're training like uh we might do sixes or sevens at eight rpe or nine rpe uh, and that, that'll be how we lead into the competition. Now, again, he's getting some exposure to some singles and stuff like that, yeah, yeah. but the bulk of his volume is coming from this, you know, what most powerlifters would consider high rep work, you know, and, and the same for, for Megan as well. Um, but then you have other lifters who thrive on, on kind of the opposite condition, you know, and I think that, that the understanding kind of the general case is, is a really great starting point. You know, and the better you can make the starting point, the faster you can get things dialed in for that specific individual. But that dialing in is a process that has to happen. And I mean, people don't fluctuate. People fluctuate, but not outside of a certain range. Like I I haven't had anybody who just really thrives the best on like 40% weights or anything like that. You know, like that's not a thing. But within this range, and it turns out to be a, a significant range. There's some, there's a good amount of variation there. Mm, yeah, you know? so like the, 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 it's beautiful what you said there because it's kind of exactly the kind of answer or, or the kind of way that the, I want the conversation to go in terms of like just clarifying my own thinking. Again, like yeah, we, we obviously there's 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 a model there as, as you said we're not going below we're not going to like forty percent but within the sort of accepted sort of model of of strength development in terms of central RM there's also going to be built in variability. And just like, because even going off like Isertel's work or Chad or Chad Wilson Smith's, like they would say, and again, it's not black and white, but they're saying, you know, generally 60, 75% is your hypertrophy type work. But to them, they were saying that strength is generally built for them, for big, for very strong guys, is going to be between 75 and 85%, maybe up to 90, because they can't get the volume in at 90% and above because it's it, the, the intensity is so taxing for like for very strong people they're talking about. So they're like the majority of very strong people say that strength for them is generally built in that seventy five to eighty five percent bracket because it's it's enough it's 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 enough it's they can get enough volume in at that intensity to get the work that, that the work volume in that's needed to require them to continue to obviously get stronger and continue to improve performance. And they said maybe even up to ninety percent depending on the lifter. Um but then you my kind of question to you was do you still always keep a tread of like something heavy-ish, like in around that like 85, even like 90 to 93, you know, two and a half percent? And you were kind of saying that this, that like even Megan or you know, they still do a single and it was Mike, the other guy, so they still, they still like my handle, just even just a single, just so there's a little bit of exposure, yeah. but then we'll back it off and the bulk 
work is going to be more towards that, you know, that that mid range when we go against seventy five, eighty five percent. Is that is that that's now, exactly what in I'm in that example? Now in those particular examples, like Megan does really, she does fine with the singles. Yeah. Mike doesn't do quite as good with the singles. Interesting. Um, interesting. Even to the point where we'll kind of put them in there a couple times just to to have the exposure, but. Mm. Having those singles in there really seems to shorten uh, the length of his training cycle yeah, in, yeah. in not not a really good way. Um, so there's there's some different variables that we're tinkering around there with with him. Now you take a different lifter like uh, Kelly Brenton, who's very strong, is and he's he's a heavyweight guy, so he's very strong for a heavyweight. So he's handling some of the heaviest weights of any other human. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and one thing we've noticed with him in the deadlift in particular, um, we have to train it less, you know, and this is the thing that anytime, uh, like you kind of make a, a blanket statement and yeah. it doesn't have these caveats and stuff like that, I know you can just say, bet yeah. that the next thing that's going <laughs> to happen in your life is going to disprove whatever you just said. Yeah, like, uh, You get these guys like it. It's funny. Cause I think I know I'll, I'll let you finish out what you're saying, but it's funny. Cause I remember, like Mike Inzertel was talking about this, he's like, he's like, you remember those guys who were like, you can only deadlift like heavy once every ten days. He's like, and like everyone just started deadlifting once every ten days. And he's like, yeah, that applied to like really strong fuckers who like needed that ten days. And he got these real skinny weak guys like, I can't deadlift more than once a week, man. He's all like, you've been undertraining your deadlift your whole life. You can like deadlift right. three times a week and you'd be fine because you're so weak. Yeah, yeah, and and I think, I mean, I think there's a ton of people like that. I think it's just at the very extreme ends of the bell curve that you find these people that, that really can't, you know, and that's been a thing that I've uh, said in the past that, you know, I think people, you can train your deadlift frequently. You should train your deadlift frequently. And I think that is true for a lot of people most of the time, but then you have some people who are very strong and also maybe not particularly built to deadlift that well. And for those people, yeah, you know, Decreasing the frequency of deadlifting seems to have a positive effect. Yeah, because you know? the 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 and I have so many more questions for you. Like I, uh, and again, I'm still. I mean, if you ever have the time between now and when you come to Ireland, we're going to get you back on because I just wanted to yeah. get, get your thoughts on uh, you know MRV maximum cover volume kind of mics and and then MEV minimum effective volume and then uh, I had just one or two questions on speed work. I know you brought about speed work. I know like you're probably sick to your balls about speaking about speed work, but actually, actually, speed work I think would be an excellent topic. Oh, yeah, and I, 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 I really wanted work. to speak about that with you, but just like because, and maybe we'll speak about this then the next. Uh, you maybe mull over and think about it because this is why I'd love to like you know get yourself and Israel and Chad sit down and and I, I know you know those guys. I know you know Chad well anyway. Yeah. But like you know they're they're more and obviously the, you know they'd probably go well again. It's not a blanket statement. But, like, they seem to be more proponents of, like, kind of sequential blocks where, like, they'll do their hypertrophy block and then their general strength block and then their max strength block. And one idea that it's, you know, in the scientific principles of strength training in their book, like, one idea Mike keeps talking about is this idea of adaptive resistance. Like, if you keep going over 90%, even if you were rotating the lifts like Louis does, because that's Louis saying, he goes, well, I rotate the lifts so you don't, you know, have accommodation. Sorry, it's a terrible Louis Simmons impression. <laughs> but he, uh, you know, so, but, like, like Mike would still say, like, that you're still going to get an adaptive resistance or a, a plateau if you keep handling loads at that you know at 90 percent and above over and over again and so like he's like when you kind of taper off and go a bit back towards your hypertrophy you're starting to resensitize the system to that and he's like 
in his opinion, he's like, once you have like a peaking block of four to six or eight weeks, like your, your motor control with 90% will come back again. And, you know, and then Dan Path often talks about chronic overload and then acute relieving syndrome when you do introduce something new to the system altogether. So there may be something to that and the phase potentiation that Mike talks about. Whereas I know yourself, like you, you still like to, again, keep that thread of never getting too far away from heavy-ish loads. I know, I know, like, again, they keep well, saying, well... That's kind, of a, that's kind of a thing that we're adapting, uh, I guess, evolving toward. Okay. You know, so as we have kind of uh, simplified the training structures to a pretty significant degree, yes. uh, one of the things that we've done is um, started to monitor a lot, I think, with a lot more clarity on what's actually producing results. Right. And you can potentiate phases uh, as development cycles uh, progress. Um, you've got to know the athlete pretty well in order to do that with any kind of meaning, you know, yeah. um, like you can do it and you're just kind of just throwing stuff at the athlete, but I don't think that that's particularly effective. I think you need to get to know the athlete enough so that you can target these changes that you're making. And once you can do that, then yeah, like some of the, uh, more recent training strategies that we've developed will step a lifter through a sequence. Like in the beginning, like say the early cycle, the benchmarking will be done with, uh, like a set cycle. It'll be a triple at a nine RPE. And then in the late cycle, it'll be a, a single at an eight RPE, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it, you won't kind of get that constant droning on of single after single, after single, after single, yeah. you know? And that's nice as well because, since the length of the training cycle is tailored to the athlete, what the athlete can adapt to and respond to, you know, you've gotten to know the athlete well enough at that point that you can say, you know, well, it's just going to be these last eight weeks or even these last three weeks uh, that we're going to have the singles or, you know, based on the last time we did this, we didn't really feel like your skill got up to a high enough level. So we'll put it in there for the last two development cycles, yeah. you know, or something yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. So there is kind of a, a, a sequencing of training stages as you go, but it's, you know, I think it's got to be tuned into the lifter. Yeah. No, that, that makes, again, these are top processes very similar to my own. It's just, and it's, it's not, and again, I don't want to come across that. Like I want reaffirmation. Like, Oh yeah. How I think is 100% right. Cause Mike, to share. <laughs> it's just to kind of see, is there a similar thought process going on there? And, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's kind of developing these thoughts in isolation anyway, you know. Yeah. Like, I'm working with people, you're working with people, uh, Mike Isretel and whoever else is all working with people. Yeah. You know, and it's it's interesting to see those points of convergence, Yeah. you know. And the points of divergence are, are interesting to discuss, yeah. you know. And, and oftentimes uh, the divergence, like, you know yourself, you end up talking to a person and you're like, oh, so, like, if that's what you're saying, that's, yeah, I'd probably yeah. say the same thing, you know, so... Or, Again, right. with, yeah. And again, it goes, we spoke about from the very beginning of this podcast, like, you know, context, context, context. Like, <laughs> sure, you, sure. You kind of get sick of saying, there's a guy, Lauren, uh, Bar uh, Lauren um, what's his name, second name, Lauren, is, I, I don't, I, I, the pronunciation of his second name just leave me now, Lauren Bannock, I think yeah, Bannock, Lauren Bannock, he has a Guru Performance Podcast, and he does a lot with nutrition and uh, ISSN in, in the UK, and like, and nearly every single episode of his nutrition podcast, he goes, He's got a real like strong English accent. He's like, he's like, I know people are gonna roll their eyes, but I have to say, it, context, context, context. He yeah, says, I know, right? I'm like, yeah. So, Mike, listen, yeah. Uh, I gotta, I gotta hop and skip and get out here because I have to go train a team in 45 minutes. But, um, listen, I've got so much more I talked about, and 
I'm just pre-warning you right now. Myself and Cam are probably going to rape you when you're over here in July. It's just so we'll be up. We'll be like, we'll be like, get out of the way, Tashir. Here, now. We're talking training. So, you, you, yeah, everybody else. Who are those fucking two guys that just keep uh, talking to the mic? You're trying to run away from us. And I, honestly, I won't, be, I won't be that bad. I won't be that bad. I promise. I promise. But, uh, It'll be fun. Oh, I can't wait for it. It'll be, it'll be great. But if, if we can schedule something before then to get more talking going, and if you're up for it, I'd absolutely love it. So, uh, I'll wrap up this and I'll just say a quick goodbye to you offline. So guys, like hour and a half of fucking savage conversation with an absolute gentleman, uh, Big Mike uh, Tushir. Can't wait to meet the man in person. Uh, has had a profound influence in the way I think about training and really enjoyed his online coaching and and like he's he's probably like I don't want to speak from probably like most of us uh, in this profession terrible at like you know saying that like get my shit because his shit is really good. So, like, go to Reactor Training Systems. It will be in the show notes. Have a look at his classroom material, like, on the microcycles and the mesocycles. If you're somebody who's looking for a coach, I couldn't recommend the online coaching even more. It's so – it's just – it's, it's like, perfect. Like, it's not overkill. You're not bombarded by it, but you get perfect programming. It's, it's emailed to you every week. Mike is, answers all your emails. He has weekly phone calls. Do you have the weekly phone calls, the Q&As? Yeah, or the bi-weekly, yeah. yeah, where you get to ask any question on your training, you can send videos to your tech, like, it's just unreal, it's it's a complete gold mine, and, and the cost was, like, it's so affordable, so go check that out, uh, for anyone, I highly, highly recommend, whether it's coaching or education, check out Reactive Training Systems, check out Mike's podcast as well, which is great, uh, so, thanks for listening, guys, uh, if you can share this on iTunes and share it on social media not share it on iTunes but leave a what's it a review isn't it Mike a review on iTunes and yeah. share, share it on social media that'd be great so Mike if you have any parting words for you say goodbye um, just that um, in addition to the things that you said oh, um, we mentioned the uh, the reactive training systems like the training log and track and things like that just kind of wanted to reiterate that that's all available for free on the for RTS free. website you just log in, you click on apps and you're there, you know, so, uh, anybody can use that as long as you want. It's there for you to use. Hopefully it helps you make better training decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. And don't forget too, that Mike, along with Greg Knuckles, along with, um, Eric Helms, uh, Bryce Lewis and who, and Brett Gibbs, they will be over. Be it, fun. They'll be over in Ireland on July. Is it first and second? First and second? I believe so, yeah. yeah. First and second in, in University of Limerick. They've been brought over by the guys from City Gym down there. Uh, you know, so we've got Arthur Lynch and we've got Danny Lennon and we've got the other guys down there. Uh, so it's going to be a great weekend. Um, so that's for myself and, and Cam will be down there. Cam will be listening to this episode, no doubt. How are you, Cam? Uh, so really looking forward to it. But guys, for now, I'll talk to you soon. Take care and stay strong. Mm-hmm.